was just talking to the kids, and it was this little wee girl, and I said, what was, what was the best thing about summer camp? And she goes, okra! <laughs> <laughs> Welcome to Food Court, a podcast exploring issues in food and law. I'm your host, Glenford Jameson. I'm a food lawyer in Toronto, and I run GS Jameson & Company, a law firm that services clients in the food sector, including not-for-profits, charities, startups, and small and medium-sized enterprises. So what is Food Court? Well, on this podcast, I'll be speaking with colleagues and professionals about what they do, about how food affects our lives, about food law and policy, and about virtually anything from agricultural production to novel foods to nutrition and digestion. I hope you find the contents of this podcast as interesting as I do, and I welcome you to join in our conversation, where I can be found as at GS Jameson on Twitter or Instagram, or on our website at food.gsjameson.com. Lastly, I ask that you remember that nothing here is meant to be considered legal advice. Thanks for listening. So we've got a group of three firsts on the podcast today. I've got two guests, which I've learned is difficult, having no formal training in being a host. My takeaway from the experience, as I mentioned to our friends at Foodstuffs Podcast, there's a reason why they only let one witness in the box at a time. The second, those guests were family members. Yeah. There's an old adage in law, a lawyer who represents himself has a fool for a client. And I think that should now extend to family members as well. So sorry in advance, family, but uh, this is a real lesson. These two guests were pretty good, though. And these family members have a role to play in education and policy development relating to food production, which is on point. Christy Jameson is the executive director of Food First Newfoundland and Labrador, and Brian Holly is the executive director of the Naples Botanical Garden in South Florida. The third thing, though, well, this episode doesn't really have anything to do with law. Initially, the intent was to discuss charities law and the core function of agencies in the food policy sector as being inherently political in nature, something that has resulted in CRA activities audits over the past several years in Canada. And the question being, how can an organization become involved in the changing of curricula in schools, changing the approach that people have to producing and procuring food, and thinking about issues of biodiversity and regional diversification, and strategies to address these concepts without itself being a political group? That was the plan. Well, because the first two points, me being outnumbered and me wrangling incredibly charismatic family members, well, we ended up talking about the great work their organizations perform instead. But that got us to an interesting place. We end up examining the fundamental act of gardening, of food production. And I found it to be immensely pleasurable to listen to Christy and Brian to learn about how their two completely different organizations share quite a bit, despite completely different geographies and stakeholder groups. Now, I should note, I learned a lot on this podcast. And because of that, there are a metric ton of links on the blog post in case you're interested in learning more about the Good Food Box program in the Inuit outport communities of Labrador, or whether Brian is serious when he references the jabuticaba or pumpkin pie fruits and what those fruits actually look like. But the takeaway for me in this discussion is the breadth of applications for organizations that engage with food in a well-conceived manner. And this is true for places as unconnected as Naples, Florida and Hopedale, Labrador. And that's incredible. So here's my conversation with Brian and Christy, which took place at Brian's home in Florida. So, Brian, why don't you introduce yourself? Sure. Um, I'm an executive director of Naples Botanical Garden. 
Um, I've been working in Botanical Gardens since 1977, and I uh, started off at Royal Botanical Gardens in Canada, and spent much of my time teaching people to garden. So it's been a wonderful career. Awesome. And Christy. Hi, I'm Christy Jameson. Uh, I am the Executive Director with Food First Newfoundland and Labrador. Uh, and have been in that role now for, I guess, six years, oh my gosh. Uh, which is shocking. Uh, it's, it's an incredibly rewarding and exciting uh, role to fill. And I would like to maybe argue that I may have actually probably both Brian and I have had a little bit of a role uh, in encouraging Glenn to move into the food world. <laughs> we were in it first. <laughs> That's it's, for sure. You staked out territory, no, definitely, <laughs> definitely. Well, you know, it's nice to go into a space that's that's familiar. Familiar that I have a couple people that I can call when I have a, a weird problem, <laughs> at least from a policy end. We've joined here together to speak about policy and policy development. This talk is largely going to get away from heavier legal issues, and we really want to explore how we educate consumers. Something that I find in my practice is that consumers, a lot of clients that I come across are consumers who, for a health reason or for an ethical reason, have really challenged or asked questions about the food system around them and are seeking to make a change or a difference or some sort of product that doesn't currently exist. And, uh, and it's through that, that ideation and asking of questions around them that they come to whatever product they want to put to market or whatever concept or service they want to provide. And that's really neat. Uh, What's really fascinating, though, is there are all kinds of not-for-profits that, that have primary goals or their, their primary mission is educating the consumer or, or creating public awareness around food issues or sustainability issues, that sort of thing. And so what I wanted to speak with you both today is, is how, how you find your efforts in speaking to the public and how that's translating into some maybe some larger changes in food policy or attitudes around food. So Brian, at the Naples Botanical Gardens, your primary mission isn't food, but what you do relates to food in a lot of ways. Well, you know, it's interesting because the most fundamental type of gardening is food gardening. And almost all of us, when we start gardening, is that we start with growing a radish or a potato or a tomato or something. Um, and oftentimes that, that act engages us in this act of nurturing and we, that sort of creativity that goes with gardening and we start to expand our horizons into other areas but no I think um, food gardening is really fundamental to to a botanical garden um, and certainly in our case uh, teaching um, how to grow food um, uh, uh, particularly for children encouraging f food gardens and schools um, uh, in having the opportunity to have children of all ages engage and all abilities engage in growing food is also something that's really important to us. Right on, right on. And Christy, your message is food-centric. Like, you are a food security organization. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and we do uh, really two areas of work, and one of them is all about public awareness, so raising awareness about the issues of food security, um, and then the second area is really catalyzing and supporting uh, and enhancing community action. Uh, around food. And so um, in Newfoundland and Labrador, the province within uh, where we work, um, the issues of food security are incredibly complex and they're incredibly obvious. Like they are something that you see 
If you have lived in that province for a full year, you have definitely seen shortages of food in your store. Uh, and so there's this very immediate lived experience that everybody has around uh, food insecurity from, from a number of different um, perspectives. So a lot of what we do is, is raising awareness and kind of almost providing um, some consistent messages that then people can use to, to inform the conversations that they're having either with their friends or family um, or with ultimately you know, decision makers uh, in different spheres. So with you, when you're working on, on getting your message out, do you find that you work directly with the public primarily or do you work hand in hand with governmental agencies or academic agencies or uh, are you sort of left with a, a horn and, and a loud voice? <laughs> um, so with us, the actual, the third uh, pillar of the organization is partnerships. Uh, so we appreciate the fact that food is incredibly complex. It's not something that one organization would be able to solve or address uh, on its own. It's something that needs to be done collectively. Um, so in raising public awareness and trying to kind of mobilize action around these issues, uh, we do that through partnerships. So we are, um, you know, raising awareness among key strategic organizations that are connected to food in different ways. Um, we're raising awareness by supporting the establishment of programs um, that get people more engaged to food, whether that's through gardening mm -hmm. um, or through you know a community kitchen class, learning how to cook or preserve food, any variety of programs. The organizers become more aware of the issues as well as, of course, the participants. So there's a variety of sort of approaches that are taken that um, help to create this sort of groundswell of, of interest and dialogue on common issues. Right. Yeah. And I think in our case, it's, it's much more one-on-one -on -one or one, on a, one person to a few people. Um, and it's almost always direct programs. I mean, we have some, uh, some things which are larger scale. We have about 6,000 kids that we touch through community gardens and schools. Um, but much of ours, like, um, we have um, a program for culinary arts students that um, enhances their understanding of how to garden, organic gardening, um, some of the issues around gardening, whether it's looking at heritage seeds or heritage varieties or varieties that particularly do particularly well in this area, or how to utilize um, other products that grow in South Florida but don't grow anyplace else, like uh, jabota caba fruit or um, a pumpkin pie fruit. Um, so that, I think, can... Um, informs at that level. Um, also, when you're dealing with children, we deal with a lot of children that are coming from, um, um, come from families that are living under the poverty line, and so their experience with food is often extremely restrictive, and it's probably the same for you, Christy. Um, I remember a couple of years ago, or two, or two things, two years ago, I had a little boy who was 10 years old, um, and during summer camp, we provide four meals a day during summer camp for the kids. Um, just so that we know they get a complete all of the calories and nutrition they need for a day. This little boy had never had an apple before. What? Just, yeah, seriously. Ten years old, he'd never had an apple. And my other favorite one was the last week of summer camp last year. I was just talking to the kids, and it was a little wee girl. And I said, well, <coughs> what was the best thing about summer camp? And she goes, okra! <laughs> <laughs> so it's like, for us, a lot of it is that one-on-one, -on -one, right? It's those yeah. those... those Kids that you know that you're touching 
uh, touching them, and they're you're you're hopefully building um, that kind of consumer awareness in a child that's going to hopefully persist into adulthood. One and one of the neat things too is that it's so we're talking about you know the connection between public awareness and these programs and how they influence um, policy or can be supportive of of kind of the <clears throat> desires of different departments or policies as well. Um, is that, I mean, food policy is so cross-cutting. It, it comes through many different departments and, and divisions and, and worlds, right? It's not just government policy. We're also talking about policies of corporations and, and, other, and other bodies. Um, but a lot of it tends to be connected to health, right? Mm-hmm. And, and a lot of the efforts um, of, of at least our organization and similar organizations to ours are trying to improve health outcomes. Um, and one of the most touching stories for me that's sort of similar mm-hmm. to what you were just sharing, Brian, is um, the stories that you hear about kids that have engaged in gardening mm-hmm. uh, and how before gardening, the desires to eat vegetables and fruits are not really there. You know, mm-hmm. you kind of stick your time, like nose up and you're not interested in mm-hmm. trying X, Y, or Z vegetables. But there's a story of a kid that had, had never grown anything before and, and then participated in this garden and grew spinach at the garden. And then after eating spinach at the garden and loving it, um, he was at the grocery store with his mom and was taking her over to the you know spinach and being like, this is like what we grew. Mm-hmm. Uh, we should buy some of this and, and take it home, right? And so it's also this, you know, you're not just um, building that kind of confidence and this incredible ability to, to actually produce something but you're also increasing desire and and demand and taste for really good healthy food and the other thing I would say Glenn is that th- this process isn't a process that takes a year or two um, you know a lot of what we're doing now is built on programs that were really important in the 70s and 80s uh, there was one cornerstone program called Philly Green in Philadelphia uh, community-based uh, gardening program that was sort of a cornerstone for what a lot of us are doing these days. Um, I know it was an inspiration when I was in Cleveland at the Botanical Garden there for developing our Ripe from Downtown programs, our Green Corps programs, our urban, which are all urban farming programs that um, we worked with kids from Eater City to develop uh, both pro- uh, produce from the garden and then in turn utilize that produce to make a, a, a range of products. But that those, it, so I think and then that type of program that we started in the early 2000s, or sorry, in the, in the uh, middle 1990s, in about 1995, 1996, now there's urban farms all over North America. I mean, it's become really a, a relatively common um, initiative and a really positive one. But it's, it, you, know, you can really trace that, that those little initiatives by those people who were, you know, um, Catalyst way back, you know, 40 or 50 years ago, and then gradually pushing that rock up the hill until it finally got to the top. And now I think it's starting to roll down the hill mm-hmm. um, and, and carry us along with it. And policy, I think, is going to come out of that finally. Well, it's amazing. The, the kid that, that grows something is all of a sudden thrust into a situation where they're asking different questions than they ever would have without having touched a garden. Right? Where things come from, yeah. why they're here, why they look like they do, how plants grow. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Right? I mean... For me, I come at this late in the game. I saw my first uh, vegetables gone to seed yeah. like this year. This is just something that I'd never really thought about. How do we get beet seeds? I have no idea. And I spent a few hours talking with a seed expert last month about this. Yeah. 
uh, that these kids would be seeing this, would be seeing this. It's so neat. So in the urban gardening, urban farming uh, sort of context, this right from downtown program mm -hmm. uh, that you worked with in the 90s in Cleveland, how it's gone across the country and sort of this, this intersection of good food policy and good economic policy is like really fascinating. Can you talk to us about like how that was started and how that, I mean, how that exists today? Yeah, well, the, um, when I first went to Cleveland Botanical Garden, uh, it was in 1994, uh, it was my fir the first time for me to be a director of a garden, and I thought, well, I don't know anything about Cleveland, I'm from Toronto, Hamilton area, um, and it, the, a great way to start would be to interview community leaders uh, from education, from politics, from uh, corporate world, from uh, manufacturing, all, right across the board. And so the first few months I was there, I uh, lined up a series of interviews and asked people about what they felt the community, what the issues were with the city of Cleveland, the, the region of, of Cleveland, and um, uh, what problems were they were going to encountering now, but also what problems they anticipate encountering. And out of that came a really overwhelming um, confirmation that one of the primary concerns was inner city teenagers and the lack of training to provide them with viable ways to make a living. And so that I, that sort of that was the catalyst for us thinking, well, you know, we could start a program where we teach kids how to, you know, do basic landscaping. And uh, if we teach them how to do basic landscaping, they can make a living. And that kind of morphed into, well, you know, we've, we've got this land. Uh, we don't have unlimited places for them to run lawnmowers, but man, we could, uh, we could definitely <laughs> grow some, some really great produce and we could, um, I teach them how to grow the produce, how to take it to market, how to set up a, um, a market stand at a farmer's market, uh, how to interact with people. Uh, and from there, we can to actually take them into manufacturing pro uh, manufacturing process. Um, I can see how you take um, uh, tomatoes and peppers and everything and, and garlic and things and make it into a salsa. They can see um, what you have to go through to d develop a distributorship for that through grocery stores. Uh, we ended up uh, making about, uh, I think the second year we had 10,000 jars distributed through a local uh, grocery chain, Heinen's. So the kids actually had to go and, not had to go, but they went and um, did tastings. You know, they were wearing the hairnets no and the way. little cookies with the sauce on them. So, I mean, it, what it, took, it did is it, it took that fundamental act of gardening and leveraged it to providing all these other ancillary skills, whether it's making change or just interactions. Um, and also taught the kids and that the, there was huge value in their work because they saw the direct value. You know, they harvest the produce, take it to market, sell their produce. Um, sometimes they weren't very happy with what it was worth. Um, I was telling you a little earlier, I'll never forget this one little girl who grew perfect cabbage and insisted it was worth $35. Um, and, but there's that value, you know, that they, they worked hard on it and they really appreciate that. So. Um, it's it, for the. It's not for every child, but certainly for many kids, it does. Uh, it is a great program, and, and it's replicable, which is really important. Has there been follow up from past participants? There has been, and I have to be honest, Glenn. I've been away from that program uh, now for uh, almost ten years, so I'm not familiar with every single thing that's going on with it. Uh, but I know that was one of the core things was tracking um, kids, and I can't quote from their success rate in terms of post-secondary education. I do know that there was some. Um, extremely high levels of success in terms of the kids pursuing education, uh, being more successful, um, 
uh, be more successful in school, and also a huge difference. Um, it was almost 100% change in the kids' understanding of food right. and what, what they would eat, what they wouldn't eat, uh, the change in diet. The, um, it was astonishing, uh, that kind of transformation as a result of this program. Mm-hmm. So, so I think... Yeah, how does that fit into your, uh, your experience, Christy? Well, I, just wanna, I, I think what's so um, exciting about that story is that <clears throat> it shows um, that we don't... So, so when we think about you know, the efforts of uh, policymakers, um, there's so many huge, whether it's health or economic or environmental crises that we're trying to deal with, mm-hmm. Um, that it's hard as, as people that are trying to kind of raise the profile of the food issue. Um, the nice thing about that story is it shows that we don't need to always be putting food forward as another key issue to be discussed, yep. but instead can be thinking of it as sort of one of the tools in our toolbox for addressing these other um, challenges that we need to, to solve. And so the more that we kind of frame food as part of the solution and not just another problem to be addressed, I think the more... Um, palatable it is to <laughs> our decision makers yeah right? definitely the more that we can kind of think of it in that way well so how does how do you experience this at your job then i mean how do you use food as a solution do you come across it very often i mean like newfoundland is newfoundland and uh, cleveland and newfoundland and naples are completely different mm-hmm. newfoundland went through completely systemic changes in how food was produced and consumed and what people were consuming and how in the span of Mm-hmm. of like 60 years from when they when Newfoundland and Labrador joined Canada to today 65 years uh, and so a lot of what you do at, at your job is to, to try and unearth ways that we used to do things yeah, yeah so I guess the we always do try to take more of sort of an asset-based approach in the efforts uh, um, when we look through the stats and we try to tell the story of food security in the province it's really quite heavy and depressing mm-hmm. I mean you're you're producing only uh, approximately 10%, it's probably significantly less than that, of the fresh vegetables available in the province. It leads us to an estimated two to three day supply of fresh vegetables in the event of some sort of crisis, like you know Hurricane Igor that happened in 2010, like the Port of Montreal lockout that happened also in 2010, like any severe winter storm that happens every year. Whenever there's one of those disruptions to the distribution of food to this fairly isolated province, you only have a two to three day supply of food. Uh, at the same time, we have um, you know, the, the types of outlets that people have access to for food. It's for every 10,000 Newfoundlanders and Labradorians, you have 14 fast food outlets, but you only have three grocery stores. Mm-hmm. Um, so the types of, of, of food that people have easy access to are not necessarily the most helpful. So there's a lot of challenges that are faced, um, but we tend to you know, definitely raise awareness about those issues but also talk more about our incredible and I think unique strength um, in the fact that we are a province of people that eat from the land and sea. That is, that is still very much um, a practice that, that is happening across the province. Um, and that we're not that far out from a generation of people that really truly did um, live in that way and you know, had gardens and uh, fished and hunted uh, and had a very deep connection to the place uh, and to the, to the food available in that land. Um, and that the people that, that lived really in that way are still there. So our seniors are an incredible asset um, in, in this conversation in Newfoundland Labrador. 
It is funny when you when you drive through the West Coast, especially, and you drive along the highway, and there's it seems like for miles there's gardens in the then the ditches along yeah. like right beside the, the the highways. That's along the the northern peninsula. Yeah, it's just a riot, and it's incredible. It's such a thin little peninsula that people want to be as close in the end <laughs> as you can be. So it's all along yeah. the yeah. middle of like just along the highway. Yeah. Yeah. And apparently, if you don't get back to your plot by a certain time in the spring. Someone else will claim it. <laughs> <laughs> it's amazing. It is, but it's totally understandable because I have to say, I, I, with Christy living in Newfoundland, I've had a chance to visit there a few times. And um, when you're on the West Coast, um, there's no green stuff to eat <laughs> in the stores. I mean, it's you know, you get some carrots and onions and potatoes, but that's about it. It's uh, I had a romaine that's probably about four weeks old, and um, yeah. uh, it's so there yeah. is a it's really a food desert. The, the province. Yeah. <laughs> yes. Well, so yeah. To, to bring it back into this idea of, uh, I mean, you'd mentioned working with chefs or working with hospitality sure. a little bit. I mean, Newfoundland, one of the stories of the, of the 2010s, really the last 10 years, has been Newfoundland's culinary it's scene. incredible. Which is remarkable. But its mm-hmm. primary message has been based around what you just said and sort yeah. of rediscovering how rich a place for food Newfoundland Library is if you can, if you can engage with it. And I think there's actually, speaking of chefs and restaurateurs in Newfoundland and Labrador, they, and I think everywhere, but especially for us, they play such a critical role in advancing um, policy dialogue on food issues. So there's a few things that are happening that are, I mean, incredible. The fact that I believe Newfoundland and Labrador is the only province where chefs are actually able to purchase food from hunters. So you go to a restaurant in St. John's and you can get seal and you can have moose on the menu. Um, and there is there are regulations in place that allow for that, which is spectacular. Yeah, yeah Unique Newfoundland, there's a little pilot project in Quebec where you can buy certain things okay. in certain places, but that's it. It's just a Newfoundland story. It's amazing. And it, it makes it allows for that heritage and the food traditions of the place to really come through in the culinary scene. Um, But at the same time, one of the big things that's been an issue that many people have spoken about uh, in the province is the fact that you can't buy directly from fishermen. You can't buy fish directly from fishermen. So as a consumer, you wouldn't be able to go to the wharf and buy some cod. You have to either go to a fish shop or go through a processing plant. Um, And that's also been the same for restaurants. And for chefs and restaurateurs, that drives their costs way up because they're paying the same for fish, essentially, as what you and I would be as consumers. Um, to cook things at home Uh, and it's because of the the work of our chefs that we just recently this fall had a change in regulation to allow for the direct sale of fish so that's that's it like I mean that that is a a group of people in the province that are really driving positive policy change uh, to enhance and strengthen the local food system well we've been down here we've been talking about permaculture with you Mm -hmm. a little bit and so so there's a real link that you've discovered between sort of people who are interested in growing food and, and permaculture, it's sort of... Yeah, well, I mean, at, at its most basic, permaculture is essentially um, um, thinking about your garden, uh, your landscape as an ecosystem and, um, and trying to maintain a balance of, you know, balancing in a, a healthy ecosystem. And a lot of that goes, but again, goes back to the roots of Rodale, uh, and organic gardening and, and back in the um, 60s, 70s, 80s. Um, but we're seeing a tremendous resurgence in that right now, which I, I find incredibly exciting. And, um, uh, and it's you know, now resulting in some really cool initiatives, things like food forests, 
uh, which are, Christy and I were talking about these last night. There's a, one very nearby at Florida Gulf Coast University. Uh, but these are popping up kind of everywhere, and they're places that kind of produce in per, you know, perpetuity um, uh, so their sources of food. Um, and I think that's, that's really exciting, and it's something that could be a lot more pervasive. Um, and then the other thing, we're finally seeing people starting to really value one of the most key elements of permaculture, which is valuing soil. You know, soil is an organism, uh, keeping that organism healthy, um, not um, you know, degrading it in, you know, with uh, fertilizers, pesticides, or whatever it might be, um, and, and handling it in a way that allows it to drain well and hold you know, nutrients and um, provide that, that uh, wonderful ecosystem base for, for your garden. Um, so yeah, it's, it's very exciting, and, and chefs are driving that too. I mean, you're seeing that more and more as chefs demand for not just organic food, but from for food that is um, has its origins in kind of ecological systems. Uh, you know, we were talking yesterday about the I forget the name of the restaurant in Copenhagen, but Noma. Um, no, yeah, Noma, which is you know sort of <clears throat> some people consider to be one of the great restaurant, one of one of if not the best restaurant in the world, and. Um, and you know they're really you know harvesting so much stuff from the wild, um, and <clears throat> that's exciting to me. But it, it kind of brings that permaculture thing into almost a complete circle of re- rethinking about what our food sources are, um, and um, and our food sources aren't necessarily what we cultivate in rows or in square beds or whatever. But our food resources can be um, from this really beautiful, sustainable ecological system. Mm-hmm. And that's one of the, so one of the amazing things that, again, is one of those strengths and things to celebrate about Newfoundland and Labrador is that um, being a province that's so connected to the land and sea and having such rich heritage around, you know, berry picking, um, hunting, fishing, there is also this level of respect for the environment. Um, There's a kind of an intimate connection to conservation in in that those efforts. Mm -hmm. So you never take all of the berries. You always just take what you need. Mm -hmm. Um, There's and and it it kind of uh, encourages this concept that sort of all people that are engaging in that very local food system through wild food harvesting um, are stewards of the land, you know, and they are ensuring that this will be able to continue for future generations as well. Yeah, so there's a whole other ethos that you're coming up with, which is um, you know, going from simply people eating things to people looking at what they're eating as part of an, like, a, you know, a, a complete system. Mm-hmm. Which, that's really exciting. Well, the amazing role, or the fun reason why we're having this talk, too, is that when people have questions, your organizations are, are touchstones for the public to engage with so yeah. that they can get answers or they can figure out why those questions haven't been answered. Christy... Could you talk to us about your work in the Outport communities in Labrador? Sure. So we are running a, a program in Nunatsiavut, which is uh, the Inuit settlement area in northern Labrador. Um, there's five communities that are, are boat in or fly in only, so there's no roads connecting them to other communities. Um, and we're working with three communities in the area uh, for a project, um, and I'm going to say it because it's always fun to say, uh, <laughs> um, on a project called Nihihi of Nunatsiavutini, uh, which means wow. our food in <laughs> Nunatsiavut in Inuktitut. Um, and it's a project that's working with three different communities. Uh, and the, the base idea of the project is that we wanted to 
uh, really work with the work, work with these communities to understand what the locally faced issues are in terms of food, um, to support those communities in figuring out uh, what solutions could be developed to address those challenges, uh, and then support in actually implementing those initiatives. So we're working in, in Nain, uh, Hopedale, and Rigolette. Uh, in each of the communities, uh, there's local coordinators that have been hired, and, and they have local committees that are overseeing the work that they're doing. Um, and they've spoken to residents about what the issues are in terms of food. And so we've heard everything from uh, store, as you can imagine, being a, a fly-in only community of, say, 200 people with one store, you could imagine that food distribution to that community is quite challenging. Uh, so the cost, the quality, and the consistent availability of food in those communities uh, is, is quite um, shocking, actually, mm -hmm. if you consider them being a part of Canada. It's quite shocking to see the food quality in those in those communities. So we heard a lot about that, but then you also hear a lot about um, a con, you know availability of of wild food um, uh, on the land, uh, knowledge and skills of how to actually harvest those food, the increasing cost of being able to get out on the land, the increasing risk of going out on the land to harvest wild food because of climate change, um, a whole vast variety of of challenges that were faced. Um, and then as a result, those you know, the coordinators and those committees came together and said, okay, well, what can we do about it? What, what, are, what are some of the things that we can do um, in order to, to help to break down some of these barriers to access um, to food? So now there's a variety of programs that are happening in the communities. There's uh, in Rigolette, the community of 200 people that only has one grocery store. Um, that the last time I went to that grocery store, you walk in the front door and there's like a hole in the floor. <laughs> and every time it rains, there's leaks that are coming through the ceiling. So I mean, not only is the food quality bad, but the infrastructure itself is, is quite alarming. Um, one of the programs that they have started up to address the challenges of store food is a good food box program, where mm -hmm. they've created a relationship with the wholesaler at Goose Bay, which is the most the closest um, kind of hub for Labrador. Uh, and a relationship with Air Labrador uh, in order to purchase food directly from the wholesaler, have it flown to the community, um, have the Nutrition North subsidy, which is a, a subsidy on the cost of transportation of food, um, applied to the, that shipment, um, and then to sell primarily frozen, fresh frozen meat uh, locally cool. uh, hmm. at essentially cost plus a little bit just to make sure it's sustainable, um, is that's one of the main programs that they've gotten up and running, and it has been incredibly successful. So there has been um, up to, I think, 67% of the community participating in the program. Uh, there have been a lot of comments on the um, incredible difference in quality of the food that's being available through the, the program. And we've seen some actual changes happening within the store as a result of the program. Well, we're thinking it's as a result of the program. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but there's been, you know, products that have been provided or offered through the Good Food Box that were never available in the store are now available in the store. Um, some of the costs of items have decreased in the store as a result of the comparison of what's available through the Good Food Box program. Uh, so we're seeing some some really great changes in the store that we're thinking is a result of actually just providing a little bit of healthy competition. Mm -hmm. um, so that's one you know, initiative that really came from the community. It's a sustaining program, uh, a lot of community support for it, and it's really helping to address a lack of available um, healthy, 
fresh frozen, unprocessed uh, meat in this community. Um, so there's, that's one. And then there's also, you know, more food skills building initiatives. So there's um, this beautiful program that's up in Maine called uh, Nihi Hautik, uh, which is a place for food, uh, where they are uh, focusing on building traditional and contemporary food cooking skills. So it's focusing with women that haven't had the opportunity to build some very basic cooking skills um, and using food available uh, from the land, so wild food as well as food available from the store, and blending those and, pre and preparing healthy uh, meals together with these women. And so there's stories of you know, women that have never had the opportunity to learn how to you know, bake bread, mm -hmm. which is an incredibly uh, basic and important skill to have in Labrador, where the cost of prepare, like baked bread at the store is outrageous. Um, uh, and it's also just this, like if you have bread, there's something about having freshly baked bread, right? You feel comforted, yes. you feel yeah. at home, like there's, um, so the, yeah, so you know, learning how to bake bread to learning how to make um, fusion meals, like Swedish moose meatballs, amazing, <laughs> <laughs> which is really taking that, like, you know, fusion of, uh, food from the land and food from the store and bringing it together. So there's this incredible, um, you know, mix of programs that are happening in the communities now. Uh, the last one I'll mention is, uh, the gardening program that's happening in Hopedale. Um, so this is a community that, you know, gardening is not really a tradition, um, among, uh, Inuit in Labrador. Uh, but there was a sense that, you know, we, we like there, there was this real sense in the community that, that they, they could be gardening. Um, and so there has been, after like several years of just trying to get the wood and the amendments for soil and all of the tools to the community, uh, we finally got everything up there this year. Uh, there were five quite large raised beds that were built throughout the community. Um, they grew a whole variety of different, you know, root vegetables and leafy greens. They did a big community harvest uh, in the fall and did actually a community giveaway. Um, they both used some of the food in a cooking program similar to the one that's happening mm -hmm. in Maine in Hopedale. Um, and they also did a community giveaway where people were just, you know, so impressed to see the quality of food that was coming out of these gardens and that they were actually growing right there in Hopedale. Um, so yeah, so it's, it's, you know, it's these incredible women that we have in those roles yeah, in each of the communities that are really leading this work, um, that are, uh, a constant inspiration to me. I'm always learning more and more from them than I ever would have imagined. Um, and it's, it's really amazing what can happen, um, when really it's just about building that sense of a build, like you have the... Uh, ability to make change right, right? you it's have like, agency you have yeah. agency yeah it's taking like this is a huge issue that's easy to feel completely powerless and so it's just providing that space to pull, take that power back yeah, it's like let's do something and just make it work like that's mm -hmm. what we got like, you have agency here we can do this yeah crazy so amazing Brian talk to us about working with schools sure well, and I, th I think it's very much goes along with what Christie's programs. I mean, you know, when, um, you know, is that Chinese proverb, you know, if you teach a person to fish, then, well, anyway, if you teach a person to garden, and um, uh, it provides um, the opportunity for them to do you know, so much for themselves. Um, and that's a, a sort of fundamental to our sense of, um, 
uh, our purpose as a botanical garden and those kind of programs uh, go across the right across our organization uh, from dealing with um, uh, school gardens we have a program called call your greens um, which is a support organization for schools that want to build um, pro, you know uh, gardens at their schools and um, so we provide training to teachers to principals to volunteers we um, help them to source grants we help them source volunteers uh, basically it's a complete package but we don't run the garden they run the garden it's their responsibility but we provide all the information to support them and then we um, collaboratively 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 purchase um, seeds soils things like that so that we can buy in very large quantities and the schools then get a discounted rate um, and um, uh, and now we're looking at a certification program for schools so that if they uh, the gardens meet a certain organic criteria a certain engagement criteria a certain curriculum criteria um, then they'll be actually uh, certified and uh, we think there'd be some real merit to that and also enhance the ownership um, and also um, you know, it goes back back to um, validating those teachers and principals and vice principals and administrators that stick their neck out to start something like this. Right. Uh, but now we're up to over 30 schools in um, three school gardens in Collier County. Um, we also have several other agencies and organizations that are participating. So that's one program. And the, along with that, we found that there were a lot of teachers that really, really, really wanted to teach kids how to grow food, but they just couldn't motivate their administration to build school gardens. So um, a foundation agreed to purchase 100 grow boxes, which essentially are little portable gardens. And um, so now we have a library of grow boxes that we can lend to teachers to grow a crop of radishes or lettuce or chard or whatever, teach the kids how to use it, give the kids a chance to taste it, to, to um, uh, develop some recipes with it. Uh, and then they can bring them back to us and then we can recharge them, get them all set up and, and lend them out again. Um, every all 100 of our grow boxes are checked out as it stands right now Unbelievable. and that's a program that we only started a few months ago so um, and then um, we also work a lot with kids with special needs and it goes back to this idea of you know the potential for growing food and those activities to develop skill sets so um, we're working with um, uh, a lot of different kids with special needs, but the biggest program is with um, two classes from a local high school of children with special needs. And uh, they come every week to the gardens, uh, and they work in the vegetable gardens and the herb gardens, and um, learning all the skills that are associated with that. Uh, and a lot of them are, um, a, lot of it, a lot of it is repeated, repeated activities. Um, the, um, uh, a lot of it is uh, things that the kids not only are... Um, able to do but they're able to do really really well um, and that they take enormous pride in right um, and and then at the end of the day each time the kids come the kids take a whole ba a bag of produce home to their families uh, things that they've grown other things that are growing around the gardens um, and then get that kind of enhanced feeling as a provider to their family and if particularly a child with special needs um, that are on the receiving end of everything it seems like for much of their lives the opportunity to provide something that is um, re of real value and, and really appreciated by their family is, um, uh, is really a special, a special significance to them. So um, the school gardening programs have been going on for, for a very long time, but again, I think the sophistication 
and the integration into STEM, which is big thing down here, I'm not sure about Canada, yeah, but I'm not sure yeah, science, technology, engineering, oh, and math, right? Yeah, right? Yeah. Now we've, we're trying to convert to STEAM, which is science, technology, and uh, engineering, arts, and math. Um, <laughs> but we can, so many of the, um, of the goals of that curricula, um, we can accommodate within the, the gardening context. Mm -hmm. um, there's so many math skills you can teach. Um, all kinds of spatial things that you can teach with gardening, measuring. It's just, uh, it's really um, uh, an amazing um, activity that can address so many different things. Absolutely. And I do think, you know, through things like school gardens, for other community initiatives, you know, we're just continually raising more and more and more awareness of the importance of food. And mm -hmm. particularly when, when we're seeing the impact that food production, particularly meat production, is having on uh, global warming. And we know that there's going to be this sea change in diet. There's going to have to be over the next couple of decades. We just can't sustain. Oh, but I like eating meat and driving cars. It's yeah, the best. Yeah. <laughs> hey, you're not alone. I do too. But you know, it's going to be really important. I mean, in, in terms of policy, I mean, our, uh, they're growing vegetables. Um, is going and I, you know, I can see this real shift towards, um, and we're seeing it already. This the, the sort of gourmand, vegetable gourmand. You know, the uh, this really looking for the you know the the best haricot, the best uh, greens, the best uh, you know, and really becoming um, much more aficionados of the diversity of flavors and that are available with with vegetables. And I just see that taking off like a rocket. Um, the other piece of those those programs that are working with kids is that they're also opening their eyes to another potential career path. Yeah, yeah. So we're not just thinking that like the only jobs that are legitimate jobs are being, you know, a lawyer or a doctor or an accountant mm -hmm. or whatever. You can also be a farmer. You could yeah. grow food yeah. for a living. And then that's that's a very honorable and important job mm -hmm. to fill. Um, and then the other thing that I think um, is especially evident in Newfoundland and Labrador is that the decision makers, um, the people that sit around the tables and decide policy and regulations, um, they're also people and citizens of the place, mm -hmm. of the province. Uh, and the more of these sorts of programs that we have running, uh, the more likely those decision makers are going to be touched by those. Mm -hmm. So whether it becomes, you know, their daughter is in a school that has uh, a school garden program yeah. or that their niece or nephew is involved in X, Y, or Z program. Um, it helps to, you know, make that uh, connection again to the issue. Well, you got out of a deep dive on charities and tax law as it pertains to food charities in Canada. Lucky you. We'll get you stuck listening to that in the not-so-distant future, so don't think you've dodged that bullet entirely. Until then, I hope you enjoyed my discussion with Christy and Brian. Welcome to the Food Court. We'll be back next month with another episode exploring food law and policy. Thanks to Shane McPherson for our music, and thanks to you for listening.